0: And also, of course, in terms of a polarization, human beings have been disagreeing about politics and values and the facts since there were human beings, right? Disagreement is the second most popular thing that humans do when they're in rooms together, right? So, you know, technologies that are gonna up that capacity are the ones that we're gonna naturally be inclined to adopt, whether or not, right? You know, some cranky old philosopher is sort of saying, well, you better worry about that, right?
1: Hello everyone, my name is Stephen Parton and you are listening to The Feedback Loop on Singularity Radio, where we keep you up to date on the latest technological trends and how they're impacting the transformation of consciousness and culture. This week my guest is Michael P. Lynch, who is the professor of philosophy at the University of Connecticut and the author of several books, including The Internet of Us and his latest book, Know-It-All Society, Truth and Arrogance in Political Culture. He self-describes his work as an exploration of truth, democracy, and the ethics and epistemology of technology. And in this episode, we take a tour of those ideas as we explore Michael's perspective on multiple issues related to digital behavior and the pursuit of truth. This includes exploring things like the impacts of our overabundance on digital information, the fundamental aspects of the human condition the consequences of our technological infrastructure, the successes and failures of our institutions, and a whole lot more. And so without any further exposition from me, let's go ahead and jump into it. Everyone, please welcome to the feedback loop, Michael P Lynch. To start, could you just kind of touch on what motivated you to focus on these subjects, uh, to dedicate yourself to them? And perhaps you could also unpack a little bit about what it means to take a epistemological approach to to, tech, to technology.
0: Epistemology is the study of knowledge and knowledge is what drives our economy now. It's what drives the world. And in some sense, it always has. In order to navigate around the world, we humans need to know uh, what's in the environment. We also need to know what other people are good at. We need to be able to uh, know where the things are that we want. Knowledge is a key to human existence. And right now, of course, we have ways of knowing about the world that we're not dreamt of in previous generations. And of course, there are also ways to inhibit our knowledge that we're not dreamt of in previous (laughs) generations. And we all know that as well, that we live as the conceit has it, right, Stephen, that we live in a time of two viruses, the virus that caused the pandemic and the virus of disinformation. Mm -hmm. And even as we speak, we see the effects of disinformation writ large on the battlefields in Europe, which is sad. But fact um, that we, we, we can point to to illustrate the, that problem. So my concerns as a philosopher who thinks about questions like truth and knowledge and other little issues like that um, has been in trying to figure out how our technological developments have impacted how we know about things and what our conception of knowledge actually is. So, epistemology is the study of knowledge. Given the uh, the prevalence of concern over whether we know and f- misinformation and disinformation, as I put it recently in our article in the Boston Review, we're all epistemologists now. We're all concerned with how we know and who's preventing us from knowing.
1: And do you feel like our cognitive schema are changing? Then, like, do you feel like we're actually having a tangible shift in our psychological profile due to our interfacing with these technologies
0: yeah i do in a way i mean obviously that's partly an empirical question Mm -hmm. and it's an open question in the true sense which is that we're living through the change if if it's happening and so uh it won't be until um some future time we hope where the historians of that future time may look back and have a greater sense of precision as as about what it is that has happened to us as human beings. At the moment, I think a lot of it, and I'll get to what those changes are in a second, but just to sort of reflect on it, I think at the moment, these changes and how we think about knowledge and what sort of knowledge we uh, respect and what sort of knowledge we use in our social lives, these changes are so close to us, Stephen, that sometimes we look right through them. That's the way when things are just part of our common environment, they just look like right through them. And of course, designers uh, who, whether they're your furniture designers or or landscape designers or designers of apps, of course, often want their designs to be such that they can be transparent, that they don't interfere with our use and our employment of them. And that's partly what explains why it is, for example, that that we, we don't sometimes track these changes. I think the changes, the biggest change that we've had is in the last few years, well, one of the biggest changes is the prevalence of what I call in these books, Google knowing, uh, which I, is a term by now familiar with, I think, to a lot of people. And uh, it roughly, it doesn't really mean knowing by that particular platform alone, although Google is, of course, one of the main sources of information that people have about the world. It's, it's a catch-all term to indicate how we uh, grasp information through a variety of our digital platforms, you know, the apps that we have on our phone, the apps that we have on our computer, the, interv- the even the interface of our w- that we have with our Fitbit. Mm-hmm. N- you wear such a thing, uh, or an Apple Watch. Uh, The highlight of, or the distinctive characteristic, I think, of how we Google know is that we used to say, for example, that seeing is believing. Now, Googling is, in a certain sense, believing. Digital Knowledge via digital interface is our first go-to, right? Uh, sorts of information for all of us, I think, for almost all of us, yeah, about yeah. almost any topic, not any topic, but almost any topic that whether you want to, you know, know how an example I used, know how to uh, fix your outboard engine, uh, or you want to have a tutorial on how to safely use a chainsaw until I will live out in the middle of uh, rural Connecticut. Um uh, or you want to uh, you know, find out what Aristotle said in the metaphysics. Our digital interfaces are the first thing that we go to, and often actually literally Google is the first thing that we go to. So that's the first thing. It's, it has a certain priority of use mm-hmm. that other technologies never really have had. Uh, Sure, books have always been a technology that we go through and still go to or should go to for significant aspects of knowledge and information. But as we both know, um, the the scope of information that we can can, uh, grasp on the Internet is much larger. It includes those sort of practical things that I mentioned a moment ago and so i mean just think about all those unboxing videos out there Mm -hmm, (laughs) and what mm -hmm. sort of information people take away from those um not the sort of thing that any publisher would have actually ever put in but perhaps useful to 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 many people so it's it's got a certain priority of use a priority that actually often ranks over our interaction with other people Mm -hmm. oh yeah how many times have you been in a conversation where somebody says something and somebody immediately looks down at their phone to check to see whether it's
1: it's accurate? That's a pet peeve of mine. And,
0: well, right, for, of many
1: of us, right? Yeah. But it, it, it happens.
0: And uh, if those are, you know, and I, I'll be honest, you know, I even though it is a pet peeve, I found myself tempted or in fact doing it, you know, and, you know.
1: Yeah. And certainly, I mean, there's a lot of empowerment there, right? Like you said, to yes. fix your engine, to learn how to use tools. Like we are truly empowered by this technology, but I, I do worry myself and I suspect you might as well that there is some sort of uh, loss here around critical thought that is happening because if we're not spending time to work out the information ourselves, I feel like we maybe like we're dulling the tool that we use to dissect information. Does that make sense? Like we're losing our capacity to really understand how to, you know, logically critique information because we're just used to getting the answer as a package deal. Right, exactly.
0: Uh, well said, and that's actually the the, the second, I think, and significant change. Not only is, is this sort of priority of use has become, for Google knowing, has become dominant but the way in which uh, we receive information is prepackaged. It's personalized, which is significant. It's personalized. And that is most of the information we see we receive, whether it's the ads obviously that um, will appear on the media sites that we visit or the news that comes down our Facebook feed, um, all of that is personalized, as we all both know. all of our people listening to this know uh to fit our preferences uh as as displayed by our activities online and off and that's great when you're looking for uh searching for something to watch on tv uh, or a book to read to buy or shoes to buy it's fantastic it's not so great when you're when you're looking for the facts yeah. Because when you're getting just the facts that are tailored to fit your preconceived conception of the world, your previous preferences, that's a recipe not for, you know, bursting your bubble, but for expanding your, mm. your your bubble of information that you live in. So there is, in other words, there's a passivity together with that personalization. So the priority of use, the passivity in which we receive it, by that I mean, it's, it's, it's delivered to us instantaneously and without much effort on our part, which is so similar to other sorts of activities that we, we can, like, for example, opening our eyes, right? Mm-hmm. Opening my eyes, I just receive information visually from the world, and I don't, like, sit around and, like, sort through it. It just happens, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a certain passivity to that, too. But, the, but again, think about these things running in conjunction. We've got this priority of use this sort of receptivity and passivity and then uh the personalization so each of one of those things are not bad in and of themselves and they're not necessarily bad put together but all three of those factors when you take them lead to the things that you're very worried about lead to the possibility that what we're doing is you depending on a, a certain way of interfacing with the world that is personalized passive and um and swamps our other uses and that could possibly take away from our ability uh to use other methods of interacting with the world other methods might that might be more creative uh engage more effort on our behalf and might require us in a more direct way to interact with others and their
1: viewpoints do you think this has to do a lot with the overabundance of information that we have now? Um, specifically, I think of how our senses work, you know, more uh, in a way of filtering out data than actually bringing in data. And I'm wondering if maybe we're almost becoming hyper-vigilant to the point of like overcorrecting uh, to the point of dismissiveness where now we are willing to write off so many things as fake news or not worth our attention or we only need the surface level because if I open up the floodgates, even a little bit, I'm going to just be overwhelmed by so much information online that it's just impossible for me to process it.
0: That is, a, you know, that is, that's Stephen, that's a, that's a very, there's this, I thought you were going in one direction and you ended with a very subtle point. Um, and your the subtle point that I take away from what you said is that actually our our information is personalized so we don't actually look at that much information we just look at the stuff that's immediately given to us by our our personalized platforms which is in fact mostly useful to us but the reason we do that you're saying is in part the possibility that behind all of that we are aware that there is this massive, as we used to call it, flood of information that's just sort of barely being held back by the thin wall of our personalized platforms. That's an interesting point. I'm not sure, I think that's to some extent, certainly right, but let me just reframe it slightly. I think that certainly there was a period 10, certainly 15 years ago where there was A number of books you may remember coming out, in fact, I I mentioned The Flood, Uh, 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 and a lot of metaphors like that being used. The flood of information, we're overwhelmed, people were like, there's too much to deal with on the internet, we can't, just like, that was the problem. Mm. The personalization solved that problem in a sense, right? What you've just pointed out is that maybe it didn't, it just kept it at bay. Right. It was mm. sort of like it put up this wall that, that information's all out there. Right. And building and building in pressure. But it, it is it, it it's still now, I think, to a lot of people, Stephen, still invisible out there. Yeah. People don't, I think, feel overwhelmed by their phones in the way that we might have 15 years ago. I think I think a lot of people, people like you and I might be. Yeah, right. Because yeah. we're this is what we do. <laughs> right yeah. so we're, we're very much aware like if you open that door stuff's gonna come out right uh and i don't have time for that stuff but uh other people i think most people right now are very comfy with their phones and,
1: and actually that's the point that i was wanting to get to i love that you went there because i'm wondering is that infrastructure that we built then to keep the flood at bay become such a cozy little cocoon that we've become incapable of dealing with c- conflicting information and specifically i think of like nasim taleb and his concept of anti-fragility yeah. the idea that you know exposure to struggle and challenge uh, actually makes us better in the same way an immune system exposed to a virus gets stronger mm-hmm. and i'm wondering like did did we create an infrastructural shift to block the flood that just created an echo chamber that made us basically too soft to deal with conflicting ideas and therefore critical thought now feels like too scary or too not comfortable
0: i think there's a definite element of truth to that i think that of course some people in our society are used to a lot of critical thought because if you're if you're let's say unlike myself in a marginalized group you may be finding conflict all over your life in minor to major ways that i don't have to deal with criticisms and so forth and you know assumptions being questioned but i think for a lot of people like myself that's absolutely true i think a lot of people in the in the so-called you know um you know chattering classes in particular or even though part of their job is to interact with people who have different ideas that that because of the personalization of, of information and its delivery You know, people are constructing programs and discussions and books and lecture tours, all aimed at a very narrow slice, which tends to agree with one another anyway, and the joy of sort of participating in such dialogues is generally to laugh at the stupidities and inanities of the other side, right? That's the whole point. and attempting to talk across some of our divides and our issues, not just political, i talking about, just, you know, just general disagreements, let's say, about the utility of certain kinds of technology itself tend to grind out and become, as you said, just they, they come actually to lack a, a venue for mm-hmm. certain types of critical interaction. I mean, the university still is that, I think, despite what some people say, I find that it certainly my big state university, which is a research university, but it is also a state university with lots of students from all over with different walks of life. There's still a lot of critical discussion going on. Mm-hmm. So that's a good, that's, that's a sign for, for hope. I don't want to sort of make the listener feel people listening to this think that I'm just saying, well, you know, all is lost, but I agree with you that there is the, the combination those factors that I said sort of that shape Google knowing the personalization, the priority of use, and the passivity have, I think, blunted some of our critical capacities. In the Internet of Us, one of the things that I I begin the book, actually, by Mm -hmm. talking about a certain thought experiment, uh, which is, at the time, people thought was sort of crazy. When I first started talking about it, it was 2012, which was the idea of, imagine your smartphone miniaturized and hooked up directly to your neural net. Well, now, of course, we all know that Companies like Elon Musk's uh, uh, outfits. One of his outfits is is we're actively researching this, and of course Google and Alphabet, Alphabet rather, and and other companies have put a good deal of funds into this. Lots of engineering problems that are, that's going to keep this science fiction for a while. But imagine, for example, that we had an entire society that had these neural implants that could could. Upload and download to the internet at the speed of thought. That's sort of the logical limit of where we're going now. And in many ways, that would be awesome for reasons that many people listening to this probably don't need explained to them. But in other ways, it might raise certain problems, certain problems that are, are I think, brought out by this way of modifying the experiment, thought experiment. Imagine we had that for a generation. Or at least many people did because of course not everybody's going to be able to afford it which is itself a philosophical and political issue worth discussing but imagine that people had it for a generation and then imagine that the servers crash we can even imagine that the internet's still going but just the servers that you know the the technology that supports these neural implants crash so some pe- people that had gotten used over a generation of having the internet at, accessible by thought alone. Mm-hmm. So that's real priority of That's real <laughs>
1: passivity, right? It's, it's fundamental at that level. Fundamental. Yeah. Imagine
0: what life would be like if suddenly you lost that. It would be like losing your sight or your hearing. Yeah. It would. You would lose a sense. And mm-hmm. what? what happens when you lose a sense even for a brief amount of time you become acutely aware of how dependent you were on it
1: Mm. and
0: perhaps also acutely aware of how much you might not have employed to their full extent your other abilities that's the sort of thing i think you're worried about and i think that type of thought experiment really suggests to us that we should be worried about it
1: as you take us kind of in that that cyborg direction, that makes me wonder, you know, where do you draw the line, I guess, in terms of the ideology or the causes here um, for this dynamic? Is it something we can pin on per- perverse incentives in the social media sphere, in the business world? Or is this something that's just a natural part of human consciousness finding its way onto a larger scaled platform you know how much is human how much is the human at fault here how much is the technology at fault here right
0: so uh you know being a philosopher i'm probably gonna resist trying to directly quantify uh that into a pie chart um because uh you know i think that it's difficult to assess such questions without really thinking hard about uh, particularly the human aspect, our mm-hmm. nature of our psychology. But I definitely appreciate the question, and here's my best guess. I think that, as you said, they're a large part of the issues that we presently face, both in terms of political polarization, which is a lot of what total society is about, and uh, our dependency, perhaps hyper-dependency on certain ways of knowing, which is what the Internet of us is about as you rightly said there is aspects of the human condition that you know maybe predict is too strong of a word but certainly suggest that these sorts of problems are endemic mm-hmm. to human um to, to to human culture so for example you know humans as i started right at the outset by saying look <laughs> human beings have to know in order to survive knowledge is what we're what we're built in a way that's what makes us good Evolu- from the standpoint of evolutionary design we're particularly good at figuring stuff out mm-hmm. relative to perhaps uh some of the animals that we um have quote uh uh descended from unquote mm-hmm. um so at, you know technologies that are going to up that capacity are the ones that we're going to naturally be inclined to adopt whether or not right you know some cranky old philosopher is sort of saying well you better worry about that right um now so and also of course in terms of a polarization human beings have been disagreeing about politics and values and the facts since there were human beings right disagreement is the second most popular thing that humans do when they're in rooms together, right? Um, So, uh, you know, the human condition, you know, yes. But the thing is, the funny thing is about the human condition thing is, is that, well, A, we can change how we interact with each other. I mean, I think sometimes when we say, well, the human condition makes, even though I'm using that term deliberately, makes it sound like it's some inexorable, like, just like the way human beings are. Uh, And, you know, oh, well, you know, that's sort of like saying, that would be like saying, well, you know, people have been shooting each other as well, Mm -hmm. right? You know, after, you know, sex, disagreement, and then sadly, there might be shooting each other or killing each other. That's a sad fact. That, too, could be said to be a penchant that is part of the human condition. Does that mean we should sit down and just say, oh, well, then, well, some people do, right? Some people Mm -hmm. are like this. You know, there are people that are out there that are like, well, war is inevitable. That's all there is to it. Just got to profit off of it. That's that's the best thing you can do. No, I don't I, the rest of us should not take that attitude. We should realize that our 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 own capacities and abilities and our ways of thinking about the world, our conceptual schemes are capable of changing. Is it gonna be quick to change them? Is it gonna be easy? Of course not. Of course not. Is it will it take generations? Yes. But, so that's one thing. Yes, it has a lot to do with our human psychology, but there is reason to think we might be able to change some of that. Now, as far as technology, of course, technology is, you know, when I think a lot about a lot of pro- our, our, our current problems, I think about human psychology, um, I think about uh, our politics, all right? Uh, and I think about technology. So I think in the case of technology, like a lot of things when it comes to technology, we did rush into uh, uh, certain ways of building the internet that we are now confronted with some of their unfortunate consequences. Again, another analogy I like to use is the automobile. Um, When the automobile came around, people started to say, well, wait a second, maybe we need to think about its impact on our culture. Well, yeah, you know, probably cranky old guys like me, I haven't got to think about that, Johnny. And and other people said, oh, come on, it's just like the horse and buggy, it's just a little faster. What's the big difference? Just like people used to say, the internet, it's like a library, just faster. Well, not so much. As it turns out, differences in speed and scale, right? Sometimes people say, it's just a difference in scale, not a difference in kind. Well, n- actually, some differences in scale really are differences in kind,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? And, you know, no one would say that that the automobile didn't profoundly shape our entire, reshape our entire culture. Absolutely. Right? How we live. And did that have good effects? Sure. It gave us a lot of economic independence, Allowed people to live in places that they wouldn't otherwise be able to live. Did it have downstream negative effects? You betcha. Same thing here.
1: I hope yeah. that addresses the question. Yeah, absolutely. It makes me wonder, you know, as we talk about kind of the human condition there about maybe like frustrated needs or like the relationship, psychological relationship with the environment specifically, I'm wondering if you've given much thought to, potentially the way disenfranchisement or oppression or, you know, poverty has played into this because, you know, I've done some research myself and you typically find, you know, issues where people who are in higher stress, lower socioeconomic uh, statuses where their needs aren't being met um, tend to react more poorly. And I'm wondering, you know, are we potentially in a situation right now where we have, you know, the 99% or whatever who are, you know, working jobs they don't enjoy aren't being fulfilled and they turn to the internet for escapism and then they kind of project all of these negative emotions into that space because they're they it's a place to vent and have some control and kind of like channel that uh response to unmet needs
0: i think that uh that's a good question um, it's partly an empirical question. So again, you know, it's a yeah.
1: philosopher, I'll be careful about that. Sorry but, to try to make it quantify everything. No, that's okay. <laughs> it's
0: okay. It's okay. I'm just, you know, I, I'm conscious not to want to do amateur social science from the from the armchair. But uh so I just, you know, it's always worth pointing that out, right? Yeah. Right in the beginning to warn people that here comes some speculation. Um so you know, I guess what I'd say is that the the set of problems that you just talked about, the sort of desire to enter a realm that is, as you nicely put it, seemingly under my control, even though actually it's not very much under my control at all at a certain level, but it's seemingly under my control because it seems to reflect my desires, my preferences, mm-hmm. right? It's comfy in that way, even when I'm trying to make it a little bit uncomfy right perhaps by going places i shouldn't or 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 wearing you know uh wearing my goggles to take me on a scary roller coaster ride or those sorts of things all that is still as you said nicely it seems under the illusion of our control and that can lead sometimes both because of the way the pref personalization works it reflects our desires back at us so that, and and then I think leads to projection, right? Mm. When things, our desires are reflected back at us, it's easy for us to re- the project those desires again onto the platform because it's because of the, the fact that that's what the platform wants us to do. Mm. And so the, to engage in this sort of feedback loop where we're projecting, it pushes it back on us. We project again, it pushes it back on us. All that uh, is right i guess i would say however that i think that's a, a, an affliction that that everyone has uh, i think that's that's unfortunately as i was just trying to sketch part of the very structure of how we've set up the internet economy and the platforms that run uh, on its backbone mm-hmm. so i think it's you know what you were bringing in is the fact that the material conditions that we live in that is how wealthy we are, what you know, material possibilities we have, uh, could could help determine the sorts of th- the ways that we might interact with our technology. That's got to be the case, obviously. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, right? I mean, if you're If you're of a certain wealth category, you can actually afford to run your business without actually interacting with the Internet at all, or send your kids to a school that doesn't have any um, uh, uh, Internet Mm -hmm. (laughs) accessibility, as you probably know, people uh, uh, do nowadays, if you have enough money, you'll actually opt to not have those tablets. Uh, that your company is actually putting in other company uh, in other people's schools in your kid's school, you can afford to do that. So you're right. Of course, the material conditions of one's existence will inter- directly inter- uh, uh, affect your uh, how you engage with technology. But I think that sort of that that no one who does engage with the technology is above the the. No matter how much we use DuckDuckGo or yeah. we we try to avoid some of these issues, the platforms and the f- technology themselves find ways to get us in that loop. And so I think that's, that's a really complicated question that you just raised, but uh, a super
1: important one. Do you see it maybe more on a psychological level in terms of something like uh, self-esteem or some kind of insecurity that's becoming narcissism and specifically i think of you know when i think of no know it all i think of an arrogant person or somebody who has some sort of uh grandiose narcissism uh, or vulnerable narcissism for that matter and it makes me think immediately of like un- that unmet psychological need and i'm wondering if maybe that's I see what you're saying is yeah. the technology exacerbating that or are we just carrying that into that domain and then it's being exacerbated
0: Uh, both. So human beings are naturally inclined to, um, want to react to the world in what I call an intellectually arrogant way. Mm. I mean, we all know people who are more know-it-alls, uh, than others, um, After all, I'm a philosophy professor, you know, uh, you know, you look up intellectually arrogant in the dictionary, there's my picture. You're Um, a fan
1: favorite at dinner parties, I'm sure. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Exactly.
0: So, um, you know, we're all sort of prone to that. And there's a reason for that psychologically is that, you know, as human beings, we don't like to be wrong. Nobody wants to be wrong because among other things, we don't get rewarded or promote it for being wrong uh, at least most of the time. Um, and we also of course um, want to receive the social capital that comes from being respected as being right. Uh, so we get you know we get disincentivized to stick our neck out and be wrong right? Mm-hmm. And, and incentivize to act like the person who is confident and knows what they're talking about, even if you don't, because uh, the rewards for that are quite, quite good. And that that can cause us a well, little friction on us. Those two sort of psychological needs I just described can cause friction and can often lead to a reaction where we just sort of, we act, right, in ways that suggest that we know when sometimes in fact we don't now the intellectually arrogant person is is you know to be intellectually arrogant on my account is to be a in a state of mind that you think that you know you're the expert on the on the topic at hand but more more importantly you think that perhaps you you think that what you say the sort of limit of intellectual arrogance is a little bit of an incoherence because it's the idea that well just because i think it or say it that's got to mean it's true because it was me and so as a result the intellectually arrogant person does feels that they don't need any input from the outside Mm. and that as you said that that the basis for that is not actual competence i mean you know look I want my surgeon and my pilot to be very confident. Absolutely. I want them to not have to be. I don't want them to be like, what was that? You know, What were they supposed to do again here? Or what's this button do? No, I want them to know what they're doing. And so I'm not talking about confidence. Real confidence is not the same as arrogance. We all know that. I mean, we've all seen the difference, right? so what I'm talking about is this sort of display of comp of, of you know of attempted portrayal of knowing everything about a topic and not needing any input from anybody else, that's actually based on a sense of insecurity, a fear, as mm-hmm. I talked about, of of threat to your status, a fear of threat. Um to your ego. Uh, as I say, intellectual arrogance, this capacity I think a lot of humans have, is a confusion fundamentally of truth and ego. Mm. And that, to get back to your question, is something that is natural to human beings, but again, it increases when we deal with platforms that engage in that loop that I was talking talk, that we were both talking about, where we project our desires. Those desires are projected back at us, reinforcing through personalization that yes, we do know what we're talking about. Because look, everybody agrees with me.
1: Yeah. Right? I mean when yeah, go ahead. I was gonna wonder, like, what do you think the role of like our cultural value systems are in this? Because when you mention truth there, it really strikes me as a an interesting word right because there's the different versions of truth and how much cognitive dissonance you're willing to engage with and 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 how willing you are to let truth be your truth versus like a genuine pursuit where you see challenges of opportunities for growth and it just makes me think like at the bottom of that we have things like hum- humility which i know you talk about and a desire for r- real honest truth rather than like biased comfort and i just wonder like How are our value systems changing and playing in this realm?
0: Yeah, I think that the value, truth is a democratic value, I think. I think it's a chief democratic value. Mm. Uh, And by that, I mean democracies, insofar as they are flourishing, democracies must show a special interest in protecting and promoting and providing fair access to the means by which we pursue the truth. I mean, we—it's not about the, when I say democracy is a special. I mean, va- truth is a special value for democracy. I don't mean democracies are going to should go around trying to get everybody to believe the same things. That's not possible, as we've seen during the pandemic, and and generally not all that democratic. What we have to do is instead provide people with the means by which they can relo- reliable means, a reliable means that I mean, is accurate means by which we can people can pursue the truth. And that's usually through, in contemporary culture, through various institutions, Mm -hmm. institutions that are guided by certain norms of evidence, you know, evidence based institutions. And we've seen that again, throughout the pandemic, too, where uh, it's been of crucial importance to the floor, to the democracy, to its survival, (laughs) in both the pandemic and through the insurrection, to protect those institutions like the media, education, and science. Not because uh, we're trying to get people to believe all the same thing, although sometimes, of course, we wish they would, right? We would like people, if everybody would just understand that COVID was a real threat, is a real threat, you know, that would be nice. But we can't do that directly. I can't go into people's heads and change that, I hope. (laughs) But what what we can do is try to protect the effectiveness of these institutions, which are in part designed in a democracy to help people achieve um, true beliefs on, uh, on their own. Why am I talking about this relationship between democracy and truth? Because of what you said. You know, What are our value systems and how are those impacting um, how we navigate the sets of issues that you and I are talking about now? One of the things that I think is really under threat right now is that democratic value of truth. Mm. That, we've seen it, the reason I'm talking about the insurrection pandemic should be obvious to people. Right now, I think a lot of us are really worried about whether democracies are able to protect and provide fair access to those sorts of institutions that give us the reliable means, that's all we hope, towards achieving truth. And we should be worried about that, because from a variety of perspectives, both political, psychological, technological, and otherwise, we are those, those, those institutions and the epistemic norms, that is, the norms of evidence that they enshrine are under threat. Mm. And so that means that what's happening in our general culture really does matter, because it encourages... One way they're under threat is this. Um, or three ways, maybe. Uh, I'll rattle them off quickly. First, because we've talked about some of them. First, it's under threat because we disagree now, not just over values, which is healthy in a democracy. we That's what democracies are sort of designed to do to help us navigate that, those disagreements over what we care about. The disagreements over the facts, which is sort of normal, maybe not healthy, but it's just like the way humans are. Uh, but now we're in deep disagreements over what are our what are the reliable means by which we are supposed to assess the facts? Mm -hmm. We don't agree on that. That is, Mm -hmm. what's a reliable source, for example? Is Dr. Fauci to be trusted or not? Or is he public enemy number one? some people seem to think. Those sorts of uh, issues. And once you get, of course, get into disagreements about that, Mm. it's very, that's a very deep hole to climb out of. I mean, after all, if you and I disagree over our sources of information, Then how are you, if I start questioning your sources, how are you supposed to defend their reliability? Like by using my sources?
1: Because if you disagree
0: with them, you're not gonna do that, right?
1: Because then there's no consensus reality to find a common ground on. There's
0: no common ground. There's no common currency of reasons by which we can appeal to. That's obviously a big problem. I call that knowledge polarization. Another problem is the issue of arrogance that we're talking about. The fact that people, partly because of their interface with their personalized digital environment, become very sure that they're right, that other people are wrong. This arrogance becomes not just individual, but tribal. It Mm -hmm. becomes, we know it all, they know nothing on both sides of the aisle, and that's a problem. So this attitude we were talking about begins to infect and cause that knowledge polarization to get even deeper. They sort of feed into each other in a six feedback loop. Um, and and then of course there's the just the, the straightforward <laughs> problem of disinformation. The fact that um, the digital world that we live in is now uh, a rife and, and and crawling with blatantly crazily false um, facts mm-hmm. uh, that are deceiving people, and even when they're not deceiving people, doing something even more insidious, which is, A, causing people to start to think that they don't know what to believe, which can be just as bad. And secondly, especially during a pandemic, for example, or a war. uh, And also to erode those democratic norms I've been talking about. Because once it starts to be the case that people are choosing, let's say, their side over the obvious truth. I mean, think about people who say things like COVID isn't real, climate change isn't happening, Trump won the last election, vaccines contain little microchip tracking devices or poison. All those things are blatantly empirically not true. Now, you can have various views. I'm not saying that everything about Trump is, you know, is wrong or or I'm just taking those particular claims, like let's Mm -hmm. just stick with COVID is not real. There are people that believe that, or actually, you know, there are stories you may have read, quite widespread reporting indicating that people, some people, you know, dying of COVID, still think Mm -hmm. that they're not dying of COVID. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. What is that doing? That means that there's a certain erosion of commitment to the sort of norms of evidence. A sort of like, well, my side over everything.
1: Yeah. And that...
0: is dangerous I think.
1: Do you think there's a path forward for this and it, does it does it involve retooling technology to not create these echo chambers is it, does it involve a cultural shift where you get people to read a book that they disagree with but in in between social media sessions is it you know elevate the the standards for the masses so there isn't you know, a, a insecurity around material life, like what, for you, if you're looking at this problem and you're saying, I need to leverage my weight towards a solution, where do you lean? Right now, I lean in, in the direction.
0: It's an excellent question, the way you put it if you're forcing me to just pick one rather than the obvious truth that you and I both know which is that we've got to do all those things. Yeah,
1: right? yeah absolutely, absolutely. So,
0: so you and I both know that everybody listening
1: to this should
0: know that. Nonetheless, your point is, if we had to choose a place to start, where would we go? Right now, I would pick reinforcing, I think things are so extreme right now that we're actually in that sort of sandbag moment. Hmm. I think we need to reinforce those basic institutions and our commitment to certain institutions, such as education, science, and journalism.
1: Mm. Yeah.
0: I think we, that's, that's not like a, that's not, you know, if, if you were looking, and I, you know, if we were looking for some radically new solution, we're past that now, people. Things are not good in terms of our ability to respect truth and the attitudes like humility that that come, that are part of what's involved in respecting truth in our culture. Right now, your best, uh, you know, what you could do is we need to make sure that our, um, for example, people that are engaged in trying to teach history and science to our children, have the means by which they can do that, and are protected from political uh, activists who are trying to, you know, prevent them from doing basic education about, let's say, slavery
1: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> which is actually happening in this country, right? We're mm-hmm. in a state now where we used to be seriously, we yes. are at a space right now in the United States, where, you know, it used to be like, you could say things like slavery, you know, happened and it was bad. Now I'm exaggerating, but only slightly. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the Debates over critical race theory around this country in school boards around the country are really at the point where like, maybe some people seem to think we shouldn't really be saying that. Yeah. Now that's, that's, you know, so what I'm saying is, if, you've, if people have been waiting for the red alarm bell to go off, it's it's been clanging for a while. Mm-hmm. Science is, and, and we've got to figure out, you know, something that people can invest in is trying to figure out how to encourage in our basic scientific practices uh, the ability to communicate science in a way that does not cause people to think it's the scientists that are being arrogant, because sometimes they are. Mm-hmm and how to, at the same time, allow people to feel like they understand how evidence changes, that evidence isn't something. So, for example, the notion of evidence. The notion of evidence isn't talked about enough. People say, people treat, I've been talking about truth, and maybe that feeds into the problem, because that's like, it's either true or it's not, right? Evidence isn't like that. Evidence is the means by which we achieve the truth, and Mm -hmm. evidence is scalar, It comes in different forms. Sometimes it can be only uh, appreciated from one perspective. So for example, referees on a basketball court will have different evidence about whether the person stepped uh, out of bounds or where the ball went because they're standing on literally different sides of the court. So they can, (laughs) unless the other person's standing over there, that's why we have the television cameras, right? To try to give us the bird's eye view. The point is, is that we need to invest in, trying to encourage appreciation of evidence in all these different forums. And that includes in, um, you know, in discussions like this. So that's, I think, what we need to do is protect our basic institutions. If you'd asked me this question a couple years ago, I would have said I would have led with technology. Hmm. I wrote a book about it. I've certainly done my fair of speaking to uh, conferences and uh, all the big name ones on, in in that address, folks in Silicon Valley, and I've had the the opportunity and the fortune to be able to be in conversations about these things at the highest levels of government and so forth. And I am very concerned about technology and redesigning our platforms. I want that to happen, but I, right now, I think we need to look at some of the, the, the institutions that we used to take for granted. We used to think, well, at least we got them. Yeah. We got this problem with uh, social media. Yeah. But you know, at least we got these other
1: things. Yeah.
0: Not so much anymore.
1: Now those other things are not givens anymore.
0: They're not givens and yeah. we better pay attention to that before. So that's a little bit like saying, go back to my analogy. It's a little bit like we have the neural link. We have the, we have the, the, th- the chip in our brain that gives us instant access to the internet. And because of it, we've let all our other senses go.
1: Yeah.
0: That's a little bit like what I'm worried about now. And, and, and we've woken up to the fact that bad things are happening and we're not quite sure what to do.
1: Yeah. On on that optimistic note, Michael, uh, I want to respect your time here. So I want to give you a chance before we jump off to, to maybe point people towards anything that you want to support, maybe some work you're doing, maybe some institutions that you think are doing a great job uh, fighting the battle that you're speaking to here. Um, anything you'd like to share at all?
0: Well, I, I do want to add on one optimistic note that to return to something I said at the beginning, these, these to fix these sorts of problems, the sort of problems that we're facing in the world, Uh, both with regard to truth and our material conditions, our political problems, the problems of war. These problems are, require intervention at every level of our culture, but they're not insurmountable. If, to give yourself courage, I always, or give myself courage, I think about the changes that we're still fighting for civil rights. We've been losing a lot of, uh, a, a lot of ground recently. But we've also made some real strides forward in that area, strides that previous generations might have never thought possible. And that those strides forward, whether we're talking about gay marriage or universal suffrage or uh, the rights of African Americans, people of color, these sort of strides forward required interventions at every level. It requires a change in both institutions and in ourselves. So as far as institutions that I'd love to promote, I'll leave with talking about some of the pro- I'll just say, uh, if you're interested in think- seeing how some of we've intervened on some of the projects, check out our Future of Truth uh, project here at the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute, which is a research institute with a global reach. And uh, the project that we're doing called Seeing Truth, which is a project that we're uh, working with the American Museum of Natural History in New York City uh, to talk about how art and science and technology interface and sometimes interfere with each other in trying to navigate these questions about truth and knowledge and history. So check out Future of Truth and check out uh, our our, uh, earlier project which is still ongoing in many ways, humility and conviction in public life, which engages the sorts of issues directly that we've been talking about today. So thank you very much.
1: Yeah, wonderful. We'll, we'll keep all those in the show notes and make sure they're accessible to everybody. Michael, thank you so much for your time, man. Thank you. Take care.